We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. And away we go. Episode 335 of the Al Galdi Podcast. It is Tuesday, June 14th. 2022. It is Flag Day 2022. A happy Flag Day to you and yours. Uh, Flag Day, in case you don't know, commemorates the adoption of the flag of the United States on June 14th, 1777, by resolution of the Second Continental Congress. The question is, will Flag Day 2022 feature the resolution of the commander's Terry McLaurin contract situation? Uh, probably not. Uh, we do know that Flag Day 2022 marks the start of the commander's three-day mandatory minicamp, and we now know that Terry almost certainly will not be attending the commander's three-day mandatory minicamp, even though, yes, the minicamp is mandatory. Hello and welcome to a Tuesday installment, a Flag Day installment of the Al Galdi podcast. Tuesday sets up to be a big day in commander's land with the start of the mandatory minicamp. And Ron Rivera speaking publicly for the first time since the Jack Del Rio dust-up controversy erupted. And for the first time since Ron fined Jack $100,000 for the dust-up comments. And also with Terry McLaurin expected to be a no-show for the mandatory minicamp. Next segment, I will react to now widespread reporting that Terry will not be attending the mandatory minicamp and where we are in this Terry McLaurin contract situation. You know, it doesn't have to be that Terry is no-showing the mandatory minicamp. Jonathan Allen, in a similar situation last offseason, didn't no-show the mandatory minicamp. He attended the mandatory minicamp. You look around the NFL, San Francisco 49ers receiver Debo Samuel in a very similar situation right now to what Terry McLaurin is in, uh, didn't no-show the 49ers mandatory minicamp. Debo attended the Niners mandatory minicamp. Does it have to be that Terry is no-showing the mandatory minicamp? Much more next segment. Also on the show, a very special guest, Howard Gutman the former United States ambassador to Belgium, a big-time lawyer, an actor, a radio show host. He is one of many big shots, one of many big machers who listen to this podcast, and he is a major fan of the commanders. I'm going to lean on the ambassador's expertise to discuss 
a variety of items, including, yes, the Jack Del Rio dust-up. Now, I'm not going to ask Howard about the politics of the situation. I'm going to ask Howard about the management of the situation. Howard knows politics. He has lived politics. We so often in politics hear about damage control and crisis management. How are the commanders doing and what should they be doing in terms of damage control and crisis management with the Jack Del Rio dust-up? And speaking of politics, uh, what about congressional involvement in the commander scandals. You know, it was two Mondays ago, June 6th, that we had the deadline for Dan Snyder and Roger Goodell to respond to Congress's request for them to appear at this June 22nd congressional hearing on the commander's workplace misconduct scandal. Uh, Well, why haven't we heard anything? What exactly is happening here? Uh, Howard has some answers, and wait till you hear what Howard has to say about the House Democrats going after Dan. Also on the show, I'll talk Nationals. Uh, What a Monday for the Nats, and not in a good way. Uh, Steven Strasburg is headed back to being on an injured list of having made just one major league start. Juan Soto on Monday night hurt a knee. The Nats scheduled starting pitcher for Monday night, Josiah Gray, ended up not pitching due to the start of the game being delayed for an hour and 33 minutes due to rain of Gray having warmed up. And the Nats lost on Monday night 9-5 to the Atlanta Braves at Nationals Park as the Braves now have won 12 consecutive games. Yeah, that was the Nats Monday. Uh, I'll talk Orioles as well. Uh, Their Monday wasn't much better than the Nats Monday for the O's on Monday. An 11-1 loss at the Toronto Blue Jays on Monday night as Kyle Bradish got shellacked again. But the most significant development from the Orioles Monday was a statement on Monday morning. The statement came from Orioles chairman and CEO John Angelos, who definitively said that the O's aren't relocating. Huh? Yeah. The O's aren't moving. You see, that has been a rumor and may still be a rumor. I shall explain. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Lots of feedback to my segment on Monday's show, episode 334, about Ron Rivera fining Jack Del Rio $100,000 for his uh, dust-up comments about January 6, 2021, including Ron in a statement announcing the fine This past Friday afternoon, saying of Jack, quote, he understands the distinction between the events of that dark day and peaceful protests, which are a hallmark of our democracy, end quote. And I said that that was potentially unfair to Jack, because the way that I took Jack's comments was that the rioting and looting from the spring and summer of 2020 were bad, not the peaceful protests from the spring and summer of 2020, and the peaceful protests were the overwhelming majority of the protests. Email from Christopher Merle. In your segment, you state that we should assume that Ron Rivera and Jack Del Rio have had a conversation in greater depth about his views before the statement was made, but then you suggest that Ron is misrepresenting Jack's views on the false equivalency. If we assume they have had an in-depth conversation, I would say the more likely scenario slash more logical assumption is that Ron is actually clarifying Jack's views by this statement. This would suggest to me that Jack actually does believe there is an equivalency between peaceful protesting 
and January 6th. Uh, thank you for the email, Christopher. Look, you may be right, okay? I don't dismiss the possibility of you being right, but Jack Del Rio, in his comments at his post-OTA practice press conference last Wednesday morning, only brought up the rioting and looting from the spring and summer of 2020, and his tweet from June 6th that triggered all of this only brought up the rioting and looting from the spring and summer of 2020. It would be a very low IQ opinion to say that the peaceful protests from the spring and summer of 2020 were a problem, okay? And it were as bad, if not worse, than what happened on January 6, 2021. Like, that would be a very ignorant, dumb, incorrect opinion to have. Is Jack Del Rio that ignorant? Is Jack Del Rio that dumb? I mean, I don't think so. I certainly would like to think that he isn't. Uh, my sense has been that Jack looked at the spring and summer of 2020 like a lot of people look at the spring and summer of 2020. Peaceful protests, good. Rioting and looting, bad. Uh, but hey, you know, maybe I'm giving Jack too much credit. Like, there's stuff here we don't know. Maybe I am just assuming too much intellect on the part of Jack Del Rio. Email from Kevin. Sounds like a lot of people are feeling a similar way about Ron's comments, but I wanted to point out the irony and hypocrisy of Ron saying hurting members of the community. I lean far closer to Jack's opinions than Ron's, and frankly, Ron's statement has done as much to alienate me from the team as anything Dan Snyder has done over the past 20 years. It's one thing to deliver a bad on-the-field product, but it's another thing to attack the political, social, and moral opinions of a massive segment of fans. The team has made it clear that I am not welcome in their fan base or community, and it seems to be par for the course in America today, unfortunately. As always, love the show. Keep crushing it. Uh, thank you for the email. Kevin, you know, your email and your feelings are a big part of something that I talked about on Monday's show. This Jack Del Rio situation put Ron Rivera in an impossible position because no matter what Ron did or said, a lot of people were going to be mad at him. And sure enough, a lot of people are mad at Ron right now. And so that brings us to this email from Rich, writes Rich. Put aside the politics of Del Rio's dust-up quote for a minute. What bothers me is his judgment. Del Rio was a longtime NFL player. He has been a coach with several organizations. He has to understand the news cycle this time of year. Off-season practices are drawing to a close. There is very little going on in terms of football news. He had to know his tweet would get media attention. He had to understand that media pundits, desperate for hot takes, would use his tweet to fill airtime. He had to understand that the media and the woke mob would feign outrage. None of us can know what his objective was, but you can throw this tweet on the ever-growing pile of poor decisions by Del Rio. You can put it on top of putting a rookie linebacker with limited college starts at middle linebacker, place the tweet next to Landon Collins at traditional safety, or maybe just place... <laughs> Maybe just place it under Troy Apke, moving from safety to corner. Seriously, safety to corner? Who does that? If Del Rio doesn't produce this upcoming season, it could be his last. Although I don't approve of his typical right-wing rhetoric, my real objection is to his coaching results on the field. Uh, thank you for the email, Rich. Boy, poor Troy Apke. Poor trap. Even he gets sucked in to this, <laughs> to this Jack Del Rio 
situation. Um, yeah, you know, with Zach Del Rio, look, he did a very good job as Washington defensive coordinator in his first season as Washington defensive coordinator 2020. He did not do a good job as Washington defensive coordinator in his second season as Washington defensive coordinator 2021. So 2022 will break the tie. We shall see. Uh, But excellent point by Rich. And this is maybe the most important point of all from a football standpoint with this Jack Del Rio situation. This entire Jack Del Rio situation is a result of him insisting on putting his political views out there and then articulating them in a sloppy way to where they became an even bigger story. Jack can think whatever he wants. Jack certainly can express what he thinks, but he should have known that his political views, especially given the current climate and especially given the nature of the mainstream media, were going to be a story. Right or wrong, Jack's political views were going to be a story. And he should have asked himself, is it really worth it For my views to become a story, given what Ron Rivera, I, and others are trying to build with the commanders, is me opining on hot button and complicated and nuanced topics like January 6, 2021, and the spring and summer of 2020, really in the best interests of what Ron, I, and others are trying to build with the commanders? Is me opining on hot button? and complicated and nuanced topics like January 6, 2021 and the spring and summer of 2020, especially via a medium in Twitter that is so bad for complicated and nuanced topics, really in the best interests of what Ron, I, and others are trying to build with the commanders. Do you think that Jack Del Rio is the only person on the commander's coaching staff who has opinions on January 6, 2021 and the spring and summer of 2020? And yet, why is Jack the only one tweeting out his opinions and talking about his opinions, okay? You know, sometimes in life, just because you can doesn't mean that you should. Well, if you or someone who you care about has been wronged due to someone else's negligence, you both can and should. Contact the law firm of Paulson and Nace. Paulson and Nace is a Washington, D.C. based family law firm that handles medical malpractice, personal injury, birth injury, legal malpractice, and consumer protection cases, offering aggressive advocacy for victims in Washington, D.C. and West Virginia. Call Paulson and Nace and schedule a no-obligation appointment, 202-902-7611, and make sure that you tell Paulson and Nace that Al Galdi sent you. The law firm of Paulson and Nace is always there for you. Paulson and Nace can help your family make difficult decisions. And Paulson and Nace is excellent at what it does. Paulson and Nace has recovered millions of dollars for the sick and injured. I've known the Naces for 25 plus years. Chris Nace is a past president of the DC Trial Lawyers. Matt Nace is a member of the board of the DC Trial Lawyers. It's very simple. If you have a case, contact Paulson And Nace, if you feel that you've been wronged, if you think that you've been wronged but aren't sure, call Paulson and Nace and schedule a no-obligation appointment. Yet you're obligated to nothing. You can call Paulson and Nace at 202-902-7611. That's 202-902-7611. When you call, make sure that you tell Paulson and Nace that Al Galdi sent you. Schedule a no-obligation appointment by calling 202-902-7611. You can also visit paulsonandnace.com. That's paulsonandnace.com. And don't forget to tell Paulson and Nace that Al Galdi sent you. 
Paulson and Nace, when tragedy happens, let the family of Paulson and Nace take care of your family. Well, there have been many, and I mean many, non-football items with the Commanders in their 2022 offseason. However, from purely a football standpoint, uh, you could argue that after the pursuit of a franchise quarterback, nothing has mattered more for the Commanders this offseason than signing receiver Terry McLaurin to a contract extension. Uh, he is entering the fourth and final season of his rookie contract. He has no fifth-year option since he wasn't a first-round pick, right? The Redskins took Terry in the third round of the 2019 NFL draft out of Ohio State. He, of course, over his three seasons with Washington has been very good and very durable and has been zero drama despite having played with like a mile long list of quarterbacks. And we all know how Terry's contract situation likely would play out if the commanders did not sign him to a contract extension this offseason, the franchise tag game, and then ultimately a departure via unrestricted free agency. Uh, that's what happened with Kirk Cousins. That's what happened with Brandon Sheriff. That is almost certainly what would happen with Terry McLaurin, unless the commanders traded him. But even then, the team still would wind up without him. We know that contract negotiations between the commanders and Terry's camp have been going on this offseason, but every indication is that the negotiations have not yielded much in the way of advancement. And so Terry has no-showed a good bit of the Commander's 2022 offseason program. Uh, Commander's insider Nikki Javala of the Washington Post on May 23rd reported that Terry had not attended any of the Commander's offseason program since the 2022 NFL Draft. Uh, the Commander's last week concluded their OTA practices this offseason. Terry did not attend any of the OTA practices. Uh, the commanders this offseason held three sets of OTA practices, May 23rd through the 26th, May 31st through June 2nd, and June 6th through the 8th. Terry McLaurin did not attend a single one of those OTA practices, which, yes, were voluntary. Well, the Commanders on Tuesday are beginning the loan portion of their offseason program that is mandatory, the mandatory minicamp, which is taking place Tuesday through Thursday, June 14th through the 16th. Uh, we on Sunday afternoon had a tweet from Nikki that Terry was unlikely to attend the Commanders mandatory minicamp. We on Monday morning had tweets from a number of other reporters saying that Terry would not be attending the Commander's mandatory minicamp. A tweet from Commander's insider Ben Standing of The Athletic on Monday morning, quote, Terry McLaurin is expected to skip the Commander's mandatory minicamp this week. A notable salvo in his ongoing contract extension talks, end quote. Uh, the national guys got in on this. Tweet from ESPN NFL insider Adam Schefter on Monday morning, quote, Washington wide receiver Terry McLaurin does not plan to attend this week's mandatory minicamp per source. McLaurin is continuing to seek a contract extension consistent with other comparable wide receivers that recently signed. Until he has it, he will miss reps with new Washington quarterback Carson Wentz. And quote, a tweet from NFL insider Ian Rappaport of NFL Network and NFL.com on Monday morning. Quote, Commanders wide receiver Terry McLaurin won't be at minicamp. Source confirms the two sides will continue discussions to attempt to work out a long-term deal. End quote. So yeah, in case you haven't heard, Terry McLaurin is not attending the Commanders mandatory minicamp this week. He is no-showing the Commanders mandatory minicamp this week. This is significant. This is a big deal 
Terry no-showing the commander's mandatory minicamp this week will mark just the third time in recent Redskins slash Washington football team slash commander's history that a player no-showed a mandatory minicamp for the team. Uh, The only other recent instances of this are Albert Hainsworth in 2010 and Trent Williams in 2019. And the Albert Hainsworth situation in 2010 and the Trent Williams situation in 2019 are two of the ugliest, most contentious player situations in the history of the franchise. Now, I'm not saying that the Terry McLaurin contract situation is on the same level of the Albert Hainsworth and Trent Williams situations in terms of a toxicity. What I am saying is that a player no-showing a mandatory minicamp is a rare occurrence and is seen as a major act of insubordination. I mean, Terry can and perhaps will be fined for missing these mandatory minicamp practices. The commanders could find Terry a maximum of $95,877 for missing all three days of this week's mandatory minicamp. Now, you know, you hear that total, right? $95,877. That's just about what? $100,000, which is what Ron Rivera just fined Jack Del Rio for his dust-up comments. So maybe Terry should call Jack for some advice on how to handle financial loss. Anyway, yeah, the commanders could find Terry a maximum of nearly $96,000 for missing all three days of this week's mandatory minicamp. Now, if the commanders end up agreeing with Terry on a contract extension, then I do think that the fine money won't even be collected. Heck, it's possible that the commanders won't fine Terry at all, but just understand how rare this is. A Washington player no-showing a mandatory minicamp just the third time in recent team history. Uh, For the record, I do still believe that a contract extension for the commanders with Terry McLaurin will get done this offseason. Terry, of course, is worthy of a contract extension. The commanders have the salary cap space to do a big money contract extension. And let's be honest, the commanders need to keep Terry McLaurin. He checks every box. Him being signed to a contract extension would be a big public relations win for the team, which is, of course, starving for public relations wins. And him being re-signed to a contract extension would help to sell tickets. And we know that the team is desperate to sell tickets. And you know what? I mean, just think about it like this. If you are trying to change the culture of the team as Ron Rivera is, Terry McLaurin certainly seems to be someone who can help to engineer that culture change. Uh, Also, keep in mind the recent history of big money contract extensions done in Washington off-seasons. The extensions tend to happen deep into the off-seasons. The three most notable big money contract extensions in recent Washington off-seasons were the Ryan Kerrigan, Trent Williams, and Jonathan Allen contract extensions. The Redskins and Ryan Kerrigan did not agree on their contract extension until late July 2015. The Skins and Trent Williams did not agree on their contract extension until late August 2015. And Washington and Jonathan Allen did not agree on their contract extension until late July 2021. We're still just in mid-June, so keep the calendar in mind. Kerrigan, late July. Trent, late August. Jonathan Allen, late July. We're only in mid-June. As I keep saying, it's not time to panic about the commanders not getting a contract extension done with Terry McLaurin this offseason until the start of training camp. And we are still about a month and a half away from the start of training camp. However, 
<laughs> All of that said, uh, I do want to highlight two things about the Terry McLaurin contract situation that do not have me feeling great right now regarding an extension getting done this offseason. Uh, I do think that an extension will get done, but no doubt. I mean, there are some things that jump out right now that don't make you feel great. Uh, the first thing is this. It does stand out that this NFL offseason, so many big money contract extensions for receivers have gotten done, and yet one for Terry McLaurin has not gotten done. Not yet. And yes, every situation is different, but also, yes, a number of big money contract extensions for receivers have gotten done this offseason. And you do wonder why a big money contract extension for Terry needs to take so long. We this NFL offseason have had big money contract extensions for the following receivers, uh, Devontae Adams with the Las Vegas Raiders, Tyreek Hill with the Miami Dolphins, Stephon Diggs with the Buffalo Bills, A.J. Brown with the Philadelphia Eagles. And yeah, three of those four guys got traded this offseason. And so each extension came as part of the agreement for the trade. Adams was traded from the Green Bay Packers to the Raiders. Hill was traded from the Kansas City Chiefs to the Dolphins. Brown was traded from the Tennessee Titans to the Eagles. Uh, There's no question that the negotiating dynamic between a player's camp and a team that is wanting to trade for that player is different than the negotiating dynamic between a player's camp and the team that drafted the player. But still, all of these big money receiver contract extensions have gotten done this offseason. Why does one for Terry need to take so long? And so you wonder, what exactly is going on here? Is Terry asking for an exorbitant amount? Is Terry's camp being unreasonable? Are the commanders being cheap? I mean, are the commanders slow walking and slow playing this? You know, we did see the commanders slow walk and slow play things with J.D. McKissick this offseason. And the result was McKissick agreeing on a contract with the Buffalo Bills. And then the commanders like woke up and said, hey, nah, J.D., we do want you back. And he ended up uh, reneging on his deal with the Bills and re-signing with the commanders and re-signing for the same terms to which he had agreed with the Bills. Uh, The commanders are lucky that McKissick truly wanted to stay with them because they just about lost him via unrestricted free agency this offseason. So McKissick wanted to stay. Does Terry want to stay? I hope so. I really do hope so. But you would forgive him if he had questions, given everything going on with the team. And, you know, given the extreme and borderline absurd quarterback uncertainty with which he has dealt over his three NFL seasons. Terry, over his three seasons with Washington, has caught regular season passes from the following quarterbacks. Case Keenum, Colt McCoy, Dwayne Haskins, Kyle Allen, Alex Smith, Taylor Heineke, and Garrett Gilbert. I mean, that is quite the list. Uh, A second thing about the Terry McLaurin contract situation that does not have me feeling great right now regarding an extension getting done this offseason is this. Terry doesn't have to have no-showed so much of the commander's off-season program this off-season. And I do kind of sort of wonder, why exactly has he seen it to no-show so much of the off-season program? I've gone very easy on Terry missing all that he has missed in the commander's off-season program this off-season because Terry, to me, has earned a benefit of the doubt. He, over his three seasons with the team, has been basically a perfect citizen for the team. And so I have been willing to view him skipping so much of the offseason program 
as, you know, just posturing and also wanting to avoid serious injury at all costs. Because keep in mind, uh, Terry, as a rookie in the 2019 offseason, saw what happened to Reuben Foster. Reuben Foster, during the Skins' first OTA practice of 2019, May 20th, 2019, suffered a torn left ACL, LCL, and MCL, and nerve damage. And that's it. He has not played in an NFL game since. His career was destroyed by a horribly injured left knee that got injured at an OTA practice. Uh, What was, as I said, the Skins' first OTA practice of the 2019 offseason. Terry is aware of what can happen in an offseason practice, even though, of course, what happened to Reuben Foster is quite rare. So I have not hammered Terry for no-showing so much of the Commander's offseason program, and I'm not about to hammer Terry now, but I don't really see why he couldn't have done what Deron Payne has done this offseason. Uh, so Deron Payne is entering a contract season. Uh, Deron, unlike Terry, doesn't even seem to be in the midst of negotiations for a contract extension right now. Uh, ben Standing on April 26 reported that the commanders this offseason were not expected to even offer Deron a contract extension. How do you think Deron is feeling right now? And yet Deron has been showing up this offseason. Uh, now, not to everything. He, at the very least, skipped the commander's final OTA practice, but Duran, for the most part, has been showing up. He just hasn't been participating in team drills. Okay, fine. I don't think that it would have killed Terry or wrecked his leverage had he done what Duran Payne has done this offseason. You know, Ron Rivera back in January made a really big deal about wanting guys to participate in the offseason program. Well, Terry McLaurin has been a no-show since the draft. Both Chase Young and Montez Sweat skipped the first week of OTA practices. Deron Payne has done what he has done. Uh, We, this offseason, haven't exactly had perfect attendance from key commanders players for the 2022 offseason program. Now, it is worth noting this, and I did find this to be encouraging last week. Uh, Carson Wentz, last Wednesday during his post-OTA practice press conference, said that he has spoken with Terry McLaurin quite a bit. In fact, here was Carson Wentz saying that last Wednesday. Um, I've spoken with Terry quite a bit. Um, been around him a couple times already. So uh, excited for when uh, when we do get back out on that field together. And you know, everybody knows what he brings to the table. You know, I've now been watching film and seeing different things and seeing him just continue to make play after play. And uh, the dynamic he brings uh, will just elevate us. Yeah, so there you go. Carson Wentz last Wednesday saying that he has spoken with Terry McLaurin quite a bit. And certainly all of this missed time by Terry this offseason can be overcome. I do wish, though, that these negotiations for a Terry McLaurin contract extension were not so prolonged. Uh, I do wish that an extension had been arrived at months ago. I do wish that Terry would not have missed so much of the offseason program, especially with the team having a new starting quarterback in Carson Wentz. But the bottom line is this. None of this stuff will matter if a contract extension ultimately gets done this offseason. And I do think that a deal will get done. It just may take longer than any of us would have liked. Uh, One other commander's item from Monday. Uh, The commanders on Monday afternoon announced that they had waived two players, defensive back Will Adams and kicker Brian Johnson. Uh, Johnson's name is the one that stands out. So the commanders no longer have two kickers. So the commanders now just have one kicker 
in Joey Sly, who the team in April re-signed to a two-year contract as a restricted free agent. The Commanders on March 16th announced that they had tendered Brian Johnson as an exclusive rights free agent, uh, but he now has been waived. Uh, Washington this past November 30th signed Brian Johnson off the Chicago Bears practice squad and placed Joey Sly on the reserve injured list uh, due to a hamstring injury that Sly suffered in the win over the Seattle Seahawks at FedEx Field on Monday Night Football in Week 12. Uh, Johnson, in the 2021 regular season, served as Washington's kicker for three games. And as you may recall, he made a huge kick in the win at the Las Vegas Raiders in Week 13. This was, in fact, his Washington debut. He only attempted one field goal in the game, but the field goal attempt was a massive one on which he connected a 48-yard field goal for a 17-15 Washington lead with 37 seconds left in the fourth quarter. Uh, Now, Washington this past Christmas activated Joey Sly off injured reserve, but Washington for each of its final three games in the 2021 regular season had two kickers on the team's active roster, Joey Sly and Brian Johnson. And for each of those games, Sly was active and Johnson was inactive. Uh, Brian Johnson is a local. He went to Gonzaga College High School in Washington, D.C., kicked collegiately at Virginia Tech. He was a kicker for the Hokies from 2017 through 2020. In fact, Brian Johnson succeeded Joey Sly as the Hokies' primary kicker. Up next, our special guest, Howard Gutman, the former United States ambassador to Belgium, a very accomplished lawyer, a loyal listener of this podcast, and a big Commanders fan. I'll discuss the Jack Del Rio situation, congressional involvement in the Commanders scandals, maybe the single biggest concern with the Commanders defense, and a lot more with Howard Gutman straight ahead. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC.
Well, it is a pleasure right now to welcome to the Al Galdi podcast a very special guest. He is a loyal listener of the podcast. He, since this podcast started in February 2021, has sent me a number of very smart emails, although one of them did call for me to abolish the episode number declaration at the beginning of each installment of the podcast. That was quite the controversy, but we're past that now. Uh, uh, He is Howard Gutman, the former United States ambassador to Belgium. Uh, He was U.S. Ambassador to Belgium from August 2009 to July 2013. He is a 1977 graduate of Columbia University and a 1980 graduate of Harvard Law School. He has appeared in several movies and television shows. He is the host of the political commentary radio show, As I See It, on News Radio WRVA in Richmond and on the Odyssey app. And he is a big fan and astute observer of the Commanders. Ambassador Gutman, it's nice to finally talk to you. How are you? I'm great, Alan. It's great to be on the show. Thanks for having me. I appreciate you coming on. Before we talk Commanders, uh, U.S. Ambassador to Belgium. Uh, That is quite the job to have had. If you don't mind me asking, what was that job like? It it really is the best job in the world. First of all, serving your country is great. Um, and then getting to serve it in Belgium. The Belgian people were wonderful. When I took over, the Belgian-U.S. relations were not really at their peak because I don't want to talk too much politics, but if you remember, it wasn't real popular when we went into uh, Iraq looking for weapons of mass destruction that did not exist. So at the time, they had indicted our Secretary of Defense and had prevented us from flying over Belgian airspace. But over the four years, we built a partnership, and by the time we left... Uh, Belgium had had the highest gain in favorability towards the U.S., so it was a fabulous time. Excellent. Well, sounds like an amazing experience, and uh, we certainly thank you for your service to the country. So I wanted to have you on the podcast to discuss a variety of things with the commanders, but of course, there's no bigger item right now than the Jack Del Rio situation, at least in terms of attention, uh, Dust-Up-Gate. I know that we don't agree on everything about this, and that's fine, but I'm especially curious about your take on the situation from this perspective, damage control. You understand damage control in politics. Uh, You understand crisis management in politics. What should Ron Rivera be doing, and what do you think of what he has done in terms of the damage control and crisis management of this situation? Well, I think they've done a great job. I don't think people understand the damage done, and that's a function of the political division in our country. 46% are on one side, 46% on the other. That's normal, but the 46% on one side have no idea what the 46% on the other side will think about what they say, and that runs both ways. So we know for a fact that Jack Del Rio loves the team. He loves his defense. If you asked him, would he ever do anything to harm his defense one play, he would punch you in the nose. And yet he devastated the defense last week. If you are a ball player, uh, a free agent, hopefully even a linebacker, thinking about where you should sign, um, it, it is highly likely that you'll say, uh, I'm not going to the commanders, not because of Danny and the sexual harassment problems now, but because I don't really want to play for that coach. If you are a, a, a person on the team today thinking about whether to resign, um, whether to give a home team discount, you want to be able to put it all out there for your coach. And if that's your coach and you can't respect him. Now, it's not that everyone doesn't. Some people will agree with him. 
But you've got to believe if the NAACP and former players have come out, not my words, Al, their words, the NAACP and former players and have called them ignorant and racist, um, you got to believe some people on that team, there's, you know, it's a high percentage of young black men will agree with that assessment. And that's not how you want your coach known. So um, to their credit, Ron Rivera has done a really good job. And I think that's also because our fabulous president, Jason Wright, um, they are really good. I saw Jason Wright speak two weeks ago uh, at uh, Fight for Children at a charity event. He was introducing Sheila Johnson, who owns the Mystics, and was a founder of BET Television. And Jason Wright told what it meant to watch BET Television growing up as a young black guy. Um, and it could bring tears to the audience's eyes. So Jason Wright's fabulous. Ron Rivera's fabulous. And what they said, the message they tried to send is, this is not a reflection of our team. Uh, that was to sponsor, sure. That was to fan, sure. But what they made it clear is to players that we respect our players. It, it's not that we don't believe in a, a First Amendment right to speak, but we respect the viewpoint. We understand how things we say could hurt you, even if 46% of the country on either side never quite understands the other 46% of the country. What would your advice to Jack Del Rio be, and would you at all advise him to speak again? Uh, the commanders are holding their mandatory minicamp this week, Tuesday through Thursday. Uh, Jack, if he wanted to, could do another press conference. I know, I know some people probably hear that and are like, what are you thinking, even suggesting that? But uh, what would you say to Jack? Uh, Al, as a 27-year Washington lawyer, if I prepped a client to testify, it was a two-week prep. The key would be whether Jack Del Rio gets it. Jack Del Rio did not want to harm his defense. He didn't believe what he was saying was related to football. He would tell you he's not doesn't have a racial negative bone in his body. He loves his 10 black starters as much as his one white starter, if you ever know who the 11 starter is anyway, um, that, he, that he's not like that. But he has no clue what words like, uh, you know, making, uh, equating two things, which is part of the Black Lives Matter, the, the reaction to um, watching someone have his, uh, have his wind cut off for nine minutes till he died, the, 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 that event, equating it to what happened at the Capitol, he has no idea how that's going to be perceived. If Jack could learn that in two weeks, where he believed it, where he internalized it, where he could get to the mic and say, you know, some people have called me a racist uh, and, and ignorant. I wasn't the former, but I sure was the latter. And here's what I've learned. That could do a well of good. What's the odds of that happening? I don't know. I haven't worked with him. I believe he's a sincere man and a good man. I just don't believe he gets it. He just doesn't get it. Can he learn to get it? Perhaps. Do you believe that Jack Del Rio is out of the woods in terms of keeping his job as commander's defensive coordinator? Or do you think that it's still possible that he will lose his job as commander's defensive coordinator over this situation? It depends. It depends on what he's learned so far. So if I'm betting, if I'm betting, Jack Del Rio's telling lots of people and emailing friends that he was the victim of wokeism and the cancel culture, and he thinks what happened is unfair. If Jack Del Rio doesn't get the message now, if he thinks he was a victim of something that was unfair, he's never going to be able to get through this. He's never going to be able to make that statement to the team tomorrow in an earnest way. He's never going to be able to 
to get through a season, at some point he's going to say, what the heck did I did wrong? If Jack Del Rio could actually realize that um, it doesn't matter if you vote for Trump or you vote for Biden, you've got to understand where the other side is coming from, particularly for your job. Remember, his job is only to do three things, to have the people on the field want to give every effort for him, to have the people on the team on the defense want to resign and stay here because they want to play for him, and to have others say, I want to go the commanders because I want to play for Jack Del Rio. And unless he realizes what that takes, what that means, and it's not because you can say the right thing, you've got to understand the right thing. Uh, if he doesn't understand the right thing now, it's going to fail again. Uh, Ron Rivera can try to band-aid it over for this year, but it's going to bubble over. If he gets it, he's a fine enough man, good enough coach, uh, he should be able to be, to, to be fine. We're talking Commanders with Howard Gutman, the former United States ambassador to Belgium. He is a big Commanders fan, loyal listener of this podcast. So let's get to Dan Snyder and the workplace misconduct scandal and the financial scandal and Congress. So we have this June 22nd congressional hearing to which Congress has requested the attendance of both Dan and Roger Goodell. Uh, The deadline for Dan and Roger to answer the request to attend the hearing was now two Mondays ago, June 6th. And yet here we are, and we have heard nothing regarding whether Dan and Roger will be attending this hearing. What do you think is going on here? So I imagine that Jeff Pash, on behalf of Goodell, and by the way, Jeff Pash was a classmate of mine back in law school 40 years ago and remains a friend today. He is the general counsel of the NFL. Uh, and I imagine the general counsel of the, of the commanders, it, it was um, uh, a lawyer who used to work at my firm, but he left to become the general counsel of the Dodgers, so I'm not sure who's there. I suspect they are talking to the Hill and saying, we want to cooperate fully, but this is, if it were a fair hearing with certain assurances, we would cooperate. But we can't put our executive up there to be browbeaten by Carol Maloney as she runs for re-election. We want certain assurances, and they're pretending at least to negotiate an appearance that they have no intent on going forward with, huh. because she'd be nuts to go forward with. And then the question is, was the Hill making a show of it? Was the, were the Democrats in Congress making a show by giving the letter and they got all they want from it, which is to announce the letter. And then on June 22nd, they will have other witnesses. They will have two empty chairs and they will make statements like if Roger Goodell were here today in that chair, maybe they have a little cut up doll of Roger Goodell and Dan Snyder. If he were here, I'd ask him this and that, but he did not show. If they were serious about this, Al, the Democrats, they would subpoena them. But if they were serious about their job, remember the House Oversight Committee is not the the House Committee to correct the commanders. It does fact hearings to make broad legislative proposals. So if you're worried about security deposits in sports and do people return them, you would not just subpoena Roger Goodell and Dan Snyder. You'd subpoena the head of every league about their security deposit policy. And if you were worried about sexual harassment uh, in sports today, well, we've got the Oakland, uh, the L.A. Raiders, uh, Mark Davis owner, His president just quit because he said there's sexual harassment and he can no longer operate. Uh, You've got Jerry Jones, 
we're not sure who's his children and what's happening in their locker room, that it is prevalent. If you were serious about looking at oversight, if you're serious about looking at oversight in baseball, in oversight in women's basketball, you would have subpoenaed commissioners from five leagues and had a real hearing on that. That's obviously not what they're doing. They're joining the, the jump on Dan Snyder and the NFL bandwagon because it's good politics right now. And I'm a Democrat, but that's their job to do good politics. But it's also their job to do good legislating. Um, and so I don't think they're serious about actually doing that. Will they go the next step to a subpoena? I tend to doubt it. So this will probably be an empty chair questioning on June 22nd. Well, Ambassador, I commend you as a Democrat for saying what you just said about the House Democrats uh, as you see them and why they are going after Dan Snyder. So is this simply just about politics and the House Democrats feeling like, hey, it is good politics to go after Dan Snyder, who is such an unpopular person? Look, let's not let's not bend too much the other way. Dan is not faultless. Dan is a perfectly fine target. He presided over a club that was dysfunctional for as long as he's owned it. And the practices that went there should should upset to horrify, pick your pick your verb, um, everybody. All I'm saying is that league has problems, sports has problems, and if you really want to do serious oversight, you would have included it. Um, right now, it's the easiest target to A, get publicity for the issue, that's an important part of their process, uh, and B, it's also good politics. Um, and I didn't realize how good politics it was until the Republicans started lining up on the other side. Huh. I, have, I have no idea. No idea how this country, and I think I understand politics. My, my weekly show, As I See It, talks about these very issues. I have no idea why defending sexual harassment in the, in the, in the workplace, in sports venues, is a, defending it as a Republic issue, Republican issue and attacking it as a Democrat. I don't have any idea why a vaccine got politicized. Uh, I think we take lots of issues today, and if one side lines up on tomato, the other side lines up on tomato. Um, but to me, I think there's room for serious inquiry into sexual harassment in sports. Yeah, I do not disagree with you on that at all. It has been said many times by people on this podcast that if there is this expected red wave come the November midterm elections, then congressional involvement in the commander scandals comes to an end. Uh, do you think that we are going to get this red wave come the November midterms? And do you concur with the assessment that if the Republicans take back control of the House of Representatives, that is it for any congressional involvement in the commander scandals? I, well, so two things. First of all, the red wave will happen. That's not a ref I've often talked in my show. The reason the party in power loses the next time is because the top of the ticket is no longer there. The difference between 2020 and 2022 is that Biden beat Trump in 2020, and that's why people came out to vote. If Biden and Trump are not at the top of the ticket, there's a much different electorate. That's true whether the Democrat wins in, in the presidential year or the Republican. So this time there will be uh, much fewer voters who, who shifted for the for the blue in 2020. So the red will come back in. The, the Republicans will come back in. Um, they will not. They they will end the, this aspect of the Dan Snyder investigation with the following caveat. I think we've been down this line long enough to have heard anything, perhaps, from the sexual harassment, and we saw on the finance side 
that that allegation that they took NFL revenue and attributed it to a Notre Dame Navy game and to a concert. That is serious. If it actually had happened, that they took NFL revenue and attributed it to the Notre Dame Navy game and a concert, that would not have only cheated the other owners, it would have cheated the Players Association. So that would have been a real problem. But what we learned in the response by the commanders is that although the whistleblower had done that in the initial accounting, it had gotten reversed the following August by the financial review before the reports were put in. Um, if there's no other bombshell, I don't think you'll see things from Congress. Uh, we do have Deborah Katz and her her litigation. And um, if there's another bombshell, um, Dan is in trouble. If there's not, I think he survives that. But you got to remember, he is not the owner's favorite person. Um, so He's on a pretty short leash. I don't know how many owners would vote to throw him out today versus how many would still support him. But, for example, if, if let's just say, Jack Del Rio said, well, I'm not the only one who speaks like this. Look at this on the team. Um, God forbid as a commander's fan. But if there was, let's say, a pattern of race discrimination in the coaches or something emerged, that could be the last straw. With the financial scandal, the House Committee on Oversight and Reform on April 12th sent that letter to the Federal Trade Commission, essentially alerting the FTC of the financial scandal and essentially saying, hey, what do you guys think about this? Uh, Do you see the FTC doing anything with the commander's financial scandal? Absolutely not. Um, the, The House Oversight Committee sent it to the FTC so they could take official action. The FTC is fairly busy containing people like tech giants and the like. Um, so uh, the security deposit policy of, of one uh, club amidst one league is not going to be really high on the FTC on the consumer protection issue. Um, and plus, there really was no smoking gun even on that one. It's just that the, the House couldn't either sit on it and say, well, here's what we've learned, but we're doing nothing. So they had to kick it upstairs, but upstairs is not going anywhere. It's easy to forget that there is still another investigation in the workplace misconduct scandal going on. We first had the Beth Wilkinson investigation. We now have the Mary Jo White investigation. Uh, She is looking specifically at the allegations of former Redskins employee Tiffany Johnston against Dan Snyder. Uh, I don't know if you know Beth Wilkinson and or Mary Jo White, but where do you think that the Mary Jo White investigation is going? I, I know both Mary Jo and I know Beth Wilkinson well. We were co-counsel on a case uh, for several years. Uh, they are both terrific lawyers. Neither Beth Wilkinson nor Mary Jo White are going to paper something over um, that they find on the one hand. On the other hand, they're not going to go out of their way to reach a result because it's popular in politics. They're going to look at the facts and call it as they as they find it. The problem for the Mary Jo White investigation is that's the most, that's the best playing field for Dan Snyder because the allegations are so amorphous. The allegation on Tiffany Johnson was he put his hand on my thigh under the table at a dinner. Well, she'll say yes, she'll say no. And unless we had under table cameras back then, that's going nowhere. That's a he said, he said, she said. That is the classic he said, she said. The other one was that when they got out of fight night, which, by the way, is where I just saw Jason Wright at the, at the subsequent fight night uh, event 
this year. And when they got out of fight night, um, or when they got out of that dinner, he put, uh, Dan, Dan put his hand on her back, directing him to her car, offering her a ride and the, to her car, and that the lawyer said not a good idea. Um, even if the lawyer said he was directing her to the car, I, I actually know on this one that often at major events, Dan's limo work, waits right at the entrance because he has a chauffeur, he has a driver, and he will offer people from, let's say, Bennett Zier, who used to be the head of Red Zebra, a ride to their car because he had the big limo. So if he did that with Tiffany Johnson again, he's going to say that's pretty standard. So I don't think the Mary Jo White is going anywhere. The issue really is, and I don't think we have Dan personally, you know, having to prove another than that one allegation that's still open and we will never know. But Dan personally, the question is, how irresponsibly did he oversee a, a, a club a company uh, without sexual harassment policies that we had the kind of the kind of allegations that I think not only have been you know launched, but we have some sense that videos were abused and the like. And if that were your daughter, you know, hopefully we're at the point now where it's not that funny to take videos that were not intended to be there. And if that were in your company, you'd hope it was run like a CEO in a professional organization. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, final question for you. You are a fan of the commanders. You follow the team closely. What do you think about this coming season? Uh, Rod Rivera has said that the 2022 season needs to be a step forward season for the team. Do you see the 2022 season being a step forward season for the commanders? Al, if you could judge a team that each team gets one position they're going to be awful at and the rest is great, we would be fabulous. But something told me when we learned John Bostic was a couple of steps too slow that we needed a middle linebacker or at least a third linebacker. So when I went to the draft with my son Colin, I was hoping that Kobe Dean, Devin Lloyd, some linebacker, and we got none. Then we heard that, well, you don't really need the linebacker if the, if you because they're not on the field that much if you're going to play a landing Collins kind of safety. Um, and so there was Kyle Hamilton to play the, the linebacker safety role, and we passed on him, and then we didn't re-sign Landon Collins. So we don't have a Buffalo nickel. Now we're being told, well, we're not really, don't have a linebacker, and we don't have a Buffalo nickel, but we have a great slot corner. So we'll just play five with the slot corner. And that's Benjamin St. Juice, who I think the world of, and I hope the best for, but he's one bad tackle away from having to retire with concussions and the Jordan Reed syndrome. So the question is, who's our 11th player? But what that means is we do not have a linebacker solution. We do not have a Buffalo nickel to compensate for it. You can't compensate more than 50% of the plays with a slot corner. So at best, we have 50% of the plays with only 10 players on the field, in essence. And at worst, if Benjamin St. Juice uh, takes it on the, on the head and is out for a while or, or has to hang it up, We've got Percy Butler, who we heard was going to be our Buffalo nickel or slot corner, and that doesn't seem to be happening. So other than that, I'm really optimistic. They they may have to call you out for that. Yeah, the lack of depth at corner for the commanders, to me, is a big-time worry, and I don't think that that's getting enough attention. Uh, Howard Gutman, former U.S. ambassador to Belgium. Uh, thank you so much for listening to the podcast, for emailing the podcast, and now for coming on the podcast. All the best to you. 
Al, you're, you're a joy every morning. Thanks for making everyone's morning great. All right, so let me see if I can summarize the Nationals' Monday for you. Steven Strasburg is headed back to being on an injured list. Juan Soto had to leave the Nats game due to having done something to a knee. The Nats scheduled starting pitcher for the game. Josiah Gray ended up not starting the game due to the start of the game being delayed by an hour and 33 minutes due to rain. And the Nats gave up five home runs in what ended up being a 9-5 loss to the Atlanta Braves at Nationals Park in Game 1 of a three-game series as the Braves now have won 12 consecutive games. Yes, that was your Nats Monday in a nutshell. Not a good day. Uh, the Nats this season now are 23-40, and 40, second-worst record in the National League. Uh, we don't know much about the status of of Juan Soto. He on Monday night as an ad starting right fielder and number three batter went 0 for 2 with two walks, but then Soto in the bottom of the ninth was pinch hit for by A. Ray Adrianza. Uh, Nats manager Davey Martinez during his postgame press conference late night on Monday night said uh, that Soto did something to a knee in the dugout. Uh, Soto apparently hit a knee against the dugout bench after slipping. Uh, this happened before the ninth inning, so we'll see if this knee thing is a thing for Juan Soto. But obviously, anytime Juan Soto gets hurt to any degree, that's a story. But no story was bigger for the Nats on Monday than this latest news regarding Steven Strasburg. And the news is just awful, okay? Um, you know, you cannot dress this up in any way other than the news being extremely negative. Davey Martinez on Monday afternoon during his pregame press conference revealed that Steven Strasburg will be going on an injured list due to having felt discomfort off his bullpen session on Saturday. So one major league start, one start for Strasburg, and he's hurt again. Strasburg in the Nats 7-4 loss at the Miami Marlins this past Thursday night made his 2022 Major League debut. He pitched in a Major League game for the first time since June 1st, 2021. He allowed seven runs in four and two-thirds innings, but he did toss scoreless second, third, and fourth innings. He did strike out the side in a perfect bottom of the second. He did have five strikeouts, and he did say after the outing that he physically felt well. And honestly, that's what mattered more than anything. Well, Strasburg on Saturday threw a bullpen session, and he ended up not feeling well. And now he's headed back to being on an injured list. This was Davey Martinez on Monday afternoon. He said he didn't feel right. Oh, um, some discomfort. Um, so, yeah, as I said, you know, so we're going to be ultra careful with him. As, as I said all along, so um, you know we'll see what we'll see what happens after the MRI. Yeah, so Steven Strasburg was to undergo an MRI exam. A brutal blow for Strasburg, who is trying to come back from surgery for thoracic outlet syndrome, which, as I have said, is maybe the single worst pitching injury there is right now. Uh, Strasburg, since the start of the 2020 season, has made a total of just eight. Major League regular season starts. Eight. That's it. Davey Martinez on Monday afternoon on whether Strasburg is down off this latest setback. He, you know what? He, he's, 
if he's not down, he's actually doing a good job and not showing it. But he's, you know, he felt like he was back. And um, I talked to him a little bit. You know, he's keep keep trying to keep as positive as he could be. Um, you know, and and I know. Look, I you know, one thing I do know is that he wants to pitch. Um, so, like I said, I'm not gonna sit here and, and and tell you something I don't know. We don't. I don't know much right now about what's what's going on until I until we you know the doctors look at it and tell us what's going on. Then I'll let you guys know. Yeah, it just has never been easy to be optimistic about Steven Strasburg off this diagnosis of thoracic outlet syndrome last year. I mean, I said this at the time, the Steven Strasburg who we knew was almost certainly done. His career was in jeopardy with that thoracic outlet syndrome diagnosis. Heck, his career remains in jeopardy. Who knows what's going to happen with Strasburg moving forward this season? And of course, who knows what's going to happen with Strasburg moving forward in his career? And of course, you can't talk about the Strasburg situation without mentioning the contract. Uh, This season is Strasburg's age 33 season and the third season of a seven-year, $245 million contract to which he was re-signed in December 2019. You cannot overstate the extent to which that contract has been a disaster. And at the time, a lot of people, including myself, advocated for the Nats to re-sign Steven Strasburg. But what is as clear as can be is that the Nats should not have re-signed Steven Strasburg and that the many red flags, including his age and injury history, should have been heated far more than they were. Everyone was high off the Nats having won the 2019 World Series. Everyone was high on Strasburg off him having been the 2019 World Series MVP. But when it comes to giving players big money contracts, you cannot operate with your heart. You must operate with your mind. You must be cold-blooded. You must be ruthless. You must be completely empty of emotion. And the Nats were not, and they are now ruining the day that they signed him to this seven-year, 245 million dollar contract. Uh, I feel for Strasburg. I do. Uh, You know, not financially. Okay, he's doing just fine there. But I'm sure he is extremely frustrated with his situation in terms of not being able to pitch over these last three seasons. But yeah, uh, he continues to not be able to pitch. And keep this in mind, too, with Strasburg. You know, there's the hurdle of just being able to pitch. Then there's the hurdle of pitching well, and that's an entirely different conversation. Strasburg and that start at the Marlins this past Thursday night had an average four-seam fastball velocity for Sports Info Solutions of just 90.2 miles per hour. So there's that aspect of everything as well. Uh, first of all, can he actually post? Can he actually make starts? Can he actually pitch? But then, well, how does he do? Because like I said, Strasburg last Thursday night allowed seven runs in four and two-thirds innings. So Steven Strasburg was supposed to be the Nats starting pitcher for Tuesday night's Game 2 against the Braves at Nationals Park at 7.05. The Nats starting pitcher for Tuesday night now will be Jackson Tetro, who this season for AAA Rochester over 12 starts has an ERA of 4.19. The Nats took him in the seventh round of the 2017 MLB draft this season is his age 26 season. He is not some highly regarded prospect. He honestly is just an arm whose turn to pitch just happens to be on Tuesday. And so he's going to be called up to the majors and he's going to start this game for the Nats against the Braves, who, yes, now have won 12 consecutive games. Welcome to the big leagues, Jackson Tetro. 
Uh, as for what happened with the Nats starting pitching in their 9-5 loss to the Braves at Nationals Park on Monday night. So Josiah Gray was supposed to be the Nats starting pitcher, but the start of the game was delayed for an hour and 33 minutes due to rain. Uh, the rain came rather unexpectedly. So Josiah Gray had already warmed up for the game. And so his scheduled start ended up being postponed. The Nats ended up turning to a reliever, Erasmo Ramirez, to be the starting pitcher. Uh, he got thrust into a very difficult situation, and he ended up, not surprisingly, getting ripped in this game. Six runs in three innings. Uh, Ramirez gave up six hits, three home runs, and three singles. He issued two walks in to hit by pitch. He did record four strikeouts, but Ramirez was put into a really tough spot, and he got hammered. Uh, this ended up being a bullpen game for the Nats, essentially a second consecutive bullpen game for the Nats off the tandem start for Paolo Espino and Evan Lee in the Nats' 4-1 loss to the Milwaukee Brewers at Nationals Park on Sunday afternoon. Four Nats relievers on Monday night combined to allow three runs in six innings. Steve Ciszek tossed two scoreless innings. Uh, Jordan Weems allowed two runs in two innings. He, in the top of the six, gave up a two-out full count two-run homer to Dansby Swanson for an 8-4 Braves lead. Kyle Finnegan allowed a run in the top of the eighth as he gave up a two-out solo homer to Michael Harris the second on a 1-2 pitch for a 9-5 Braves lead. And Tanner Rainey tossed a scoreless top of the ninth despite giving up a two-out single and then issuing a two-out walk. Uh, the Nats, to their credit, did battle back on Monday night. Uh, the Nats through three innings, we're down 6 nothing. Uh, the Nats did cut the deficit to 6-4. The Nats finished the game with five runs, 10 hits, and five walks. Went three for nine with runners in scoring position. Uh, another big game for Lane Thomas. The Lane train is rolling right now, so you do have that to look at in terms of a positive if you're a Nats fan. Lane Thomas on Monday night as the Nats starting center fielder and number one batter. Two for four with a solo homer, an RBI single, and a walk. Uh, Thomas, in the bottom of the third, drew a two-out, eight-pitch walk, despite having been down to the count at 1.12. Thomas, in the Nats, three-run fifth, had a first pitch opposite field RBI single through the right side of the infield to cut the Nats' deficit to 6-2. And Thomas, in the Nats, one-run sixth, a two-out solo homer to left field to cut the Nats' deficit to 8-5. Uh, Nelson Cruz continues to do well. Cruz, on Monday night, as an ad-starting DH and number four batter, two for five with a double and an RBI single. Cruz in the Nats, three-run fifth, a bases-loaded RBI single to left field to cut the Nats' deficit to 6-3. Cruz in the bottom of the seventh, a one-out first-pitch double to left field. Uh, Yadiel Hernandez had a multi-hit game on Monday night. Uh, Yadiel was an ad-starting left fielder and number seven batter, two for four with an RBI single and another single. He in the Nats, one run fourth, had a two-out RBI single up the middle to cut the Nats' deficit to 6-1. Yadiel in the bottom of the eighth, had a leadoff full count opposite field single to left center field despite having been down to the count at one point, one, two. And Luis Garcia continued to hit on Monday night. He is an ad starting shortstop and number nine batter, one for four with a double. Uh, Garcia in the Nats three run fifth, a leadoff double to right field on an 0-2 pitch. So we did have some offensive positives for the Nats on Monday night, but ultimately Monday was not a good day for the Nats. Well, the Orioles' Monday was not unlike the Nationals' Monday. Uh, news during the day that superseded what happened at night. Uh, Orioles chairman and CEO John Angelos on Monday morning issued a statement adamantly saying that the O's are not relocating. Yeah, 
Uh, as you may know, we, for years now, have had rumors, have had scuttlebutt, uh, that the O's may eventually relocate. Part of this has had to do with the city of Baltimore being in bad shape. Part of this has had to do with, say, Nashville, Tennessee wanting an MLB team. Uh, on last Friday's show, episode 333, talked about the feud that has erupted within the Angelos family. Uh, so the Orioles ownership group features Peter Angelos and his sons, John and Louis Angelos. Uh, Peter has been in failing health for years. John, a few years ago, became chairman and CEO. Well, Louis Angelos last Thursday filed a lawsuit against his brother, John Angelos, and their mother, Georgia Angelos, for control of the team. The lawsuit reads in part, quote, the purpose of this lawsuit is simple. Peter Angelos created a trust for the express purpose of ensuring that his sons would share equally in decision-making and inheritance of all family assets, including the Orioles. John Angelos, however, has been working secretly to undermine his father's intentions and to gain unilateral control. Lou Angelos is compelled to bring this action to set things right, end quote. The lawsuit revealed a really ugly situation within the Angelos family. Well, among the items in the lawsuit is John Angelos, according to Louis Angelos, wanting to move the Orioles to Tennessee. Quote, the corrupting effect of John's actions has been to thoroughly frustrate Mr. Angelos's intentions. John intends to maintain absolute control over the Orioles to manage to sell or if he chooses to move to Tennessee, where he has a home and where his wife's career is headquartered, without having to answer to anyone, end quote. And so that brought us to Monday morning when, like out of nowhere, John Angelos came out with this statement saying that the team will never leave Baltimore. Reads the statement in part, quote, as I have said before, as long as Fort McHenry is standing watch over the Inner Harbor, the Orioles will remain in Baltimore. Since I was appointed chairman and CEO, according to my parents' expressed wishes, and voted as the control person for the team by the 30 major league clubs, I have taken significant steps to ensure that our beloved franchise's future remains in Charm City. Just two months ago, we celebrated the Maryland General Assembly passing a bill promising to put $1.2 billion into reinvesting and reimagining the Camden Yard Sports Complex, which includes Oriole Park, ensuring the team will continue to play right here in downtown Baltimore for generations to come. Maryland is committed to keeping our team in this great state, and I am equally committed to keeping the Orioles at the heart of our state. I want to assure our Orioles players and coaches, our dedicated front office, senior leadership team and staff, and our devoted fans, trusted partners, elected civic and nonprofit leaders, and our entire community that the Orioles will never leave, end quote. So there you go. The Orioles will never leave Baltimore, at least according to John Angelos, who, along with his mother, is being sued by brother Louis Angelos. Uh, who knows whether John Angelos is lying or telling the truth. Uh, like I said, the city of Baltimore is in really rough shape right now. Consider this. The O's this past March were valued by Forbes at $1.375 billion. They were the only MLB team to have declined in value from 2021. Think about that. The Orioles were the only team in MLB to decline in value from 2021. 
All I know about the Orioles' ownership mess is one thing. The time has long since passed for the Angelos family to sell the team, okay? The time has long since passed for the Angelos family to get out. Enough is enough. Peter Angelos bought the O's for $173 million in August 1993. The family can make a nice profit. Split it up however you want, or I'd take it up in court. I don't care, but get out. The Angelos family's nearly three decades of ownership of the O's overall have been bad. You know, the O's made the playoffs in back-to-back seasons, 1996 and 97, then had 14 consecutive losing seasons, then made the playoffs three times in five seasons, 2012, 2014, and 2016, and then plummeted into being an atrocious team. And now hopefully are coming out of a much-needed rebuild and remaking of baseball operations with Mike Elias as executive vice president and general manager. But overall, the Angeloses have not been good owners for the O's. And now it turns out that the two brothers can't stand each other and that John Angelos even had to put out a statement like the one that he put out on Monday morning. I think tells you all that you need to know. So... We'll see what happens with the Orioles' ownership situation. Uh, and, then there, <laughs> and then there was the Orioles' game on Monday night, and that was a complete disaster. An 11-1 loss at the Toronto Blue Jays in Game 1 of a four-game series. Uh, the O's fell to 26-36 and 36 on the season. So the series is taking place in Canada, which, as you may know, has very strict COVID-19 rules. And so the O's on Monday afternoon placed two players on the restricted list, outfielder Anthony Santander and reliever Keegan Aiken. We don't know specifically for sure why those players were placed on the restricted list, but we do know that unvaccinated players for COVID-19 are not allowed to enter Canada. So the O's for this series, it looks like, are going to be without two key players in Santander and Aiken. Uh, The biggest item for the O's from Monday night's loss uh, was that Kyle Bradish struggled for a sixth consecutive start. A very discouraging what is happening with Bradish. He on Monday night allowed five runs in four into third innings. He gave up nine hits, a double and eight singles. He issued one walk. He had three strikeouts. He over his four into third innings threw 90 pitches, 54 strikes, versus 36 balls. Kyle Bradish over nine major league starts this season has an ERA of 686. I mean, just not good. The O's on April 29th recalled Bradish from AAA Norfolk. There was a lot of excitement with him making his major league debut. And sure enough, he was good in two of his first three starts, but he has been really bad ever since. It's crazy. Bradish had this great outing at the St. Louis Cardinals, a 5-3 win at the Cardinals on May 10th. Two runs in seven innings, 11 strikeouts versus no walks. Bradish was outstanding on that night, and yet in each of his six starts since that outing at the Cardinals, he has really struggled. You know, Bradish, Bruce Zimmerman, and Jordan Lyles, uh, three Orioles starting pitchers who have all been struggling lately. Game two for the O's at the Blue Jays, Tuesday night at 7.07, and Jordan Lyles will be the Orioles starting pitcher. And that will do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Wednesday show, episode 336, will feature a lot on the commanders off the start on Tuesday of their three-day mandatory minicamp, Tuesday through Thursday. Uh, Ron Rivera is expected to do a press conference on Tuesday. We'll see who else speaks to reporters in the 
Jack Del Rio and Terry McLaurin situations figure to be front and center. So we on Wednesday show are going to have a lot to discuss. Uh, also on Wednesday show, I'll talk Nationals and Orioles. Game two for the Nats against the Atlanta Braves in Nationals Park is on Tuesday night at 7.05. Game two for the O's at the Toronto Blue Jays is on Tuesday night at 7.07. Have a great rest of your Tuesday, and they'll talk to you on Wednesday. Um, I've spoken with Terry quite a bit. Um, been around him a couple times already. So uh, excited for when uh, when we do get back out on that field together. And, you know, everybody knows what he brings to the table. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.